I'm Lindsay Claiborne. And I'm Mumu Shu, and you are listening to Beyond the Microscope. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to a new episode of Beyond the Microscope. Our guest today is Dr. Jayshree Sait, a corporate scientist and the first ever chief science advocate at 3M. Jayshree, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So I we always sort of wind up asking this obvious question, but um, what is a corporate scientist and a chief science advocate? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, the first one is easier. Um, the corporate scientist means uh, the highest level of uh, scientist at 3M, so the highest technical designation. Um, and there's about 26 of us right now, uh, two women, and I'm the only engineer woman on there. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> we'll come back to that. And and uh, chief science advocate, that is a new role that has been created at 3M. And so I'm honored to be the first ever chief science advocate. And the idea is to advocate for science, simply stated. And the reason why we did that is that recently we did a survey called the State of Science Index. And what we found in that survey is that people are not making the connection between science and all it does for their daily lives. And our brand platform is Science Applied to Life. I mean, we know the value of science, we value science, and we're applying it to enhance uh, homes, to advance companies, and uh, improve lives. And so we wanted to understand what the general population thought about science. And in the survey, it revealed that 40% of the people said that if science didn't exist, their lives wouldn't be any different. And so, and then you panicked I mean, when you heard that. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of very obvious that there's some sort of a disconnect here, right? Because, you know, get this, a lot of the people were actually taking the survey on their laptops. So, I mean, they're obviously not making the connection. There is not that acknowledgement or appreciation of science. And there's some sort of an apathy, if you will. And so we realized that we kind of need to advocate for it. Uh, we also found that 92% of the people, parents, said that they would like their kids to know more about science, and 82% of adults surveyed said that they would want kids to pursue, or they would encourage kids to pursue careers in science. So I think people understand the importance of science. It's just that they don't see or appreciate it in their daily lives, and that's why we created this role, which is all about advocacy for science and making people sort of aware uh, and more appreciative of science in their daily lives. And so what are you uh, or are you or in 3M doing in terms of uh, advocacy? Like what specifics? Yeah, so we're, um, it's just still a little new, but we're trying to sort out exactly what we would do under the advocacy umbrella because 3M does a lot in all the communities that we are in. So we invest a lot in STEM programs, in uh, all sorts of uh, encouragement programs for schools and colleges, universities, in all the communities that we operate in. But we wanted to kick it up a notch in terms of advocacy. So the way I view it personally, after looking at all the data that came from the State of Science Index is uh, very simply stated A, B, and C. A to me is what I just mentioned, which is making people aware making people acknowledge, making people appreciate and move them from this apathy. Because if we're going to have a strong pipeline of people in science, of kids in science and wanting to do science, uh, we can't have a large population, 40% believing that if science didn't exist, their lives wouldn't be any different. So I think that 
disconnect, we need to try and, and make people aware of it. That's one piece of it. The second uh, bucket, uh, if you will, is, is my B, which is the biases and the barriers and the beliefs and sort of breaking them down. So what we found in our survey is that a lot of people think science is for geniuses. One third of the people surveyed, in fact, thought that. And in developing countries, um, it was more like 44% of the people believe that science is for genius. Um, so that's a problem. Uh, I should mention that the survey was done in 14 countries, 1,000 respondents each, so over 14,000 respondents and, and covering uh, a gamut of countries, you know, from developed to developing. And it is uh, kind of disheartening to hear that people think that science is only for genius. And so we have all these stereotypes and, you know, things like the lone sci loner scientist, the maverick scientist, the evil scientist, the nerd scientist, the geeky scientist, you know, those kinds of things. Uh, that we have to slowly sort of break down the bias barriers. And also people thought that, you know, pursuing science will not allow them to have a satisfying career. People ranked other careers way over science-based careers. So those kinds of misconceptions, they just exist. And we have to do, um, you know, uh, sort of undo that and, and make sure people understand that you are actually improving lives and it's largely related to the fact that most people don't understand how it relates to how it improves and that goes back to that first point where people just don't even think that science is part of their lives. And the third piece is, is more about the C, which I say is more about context and communication. See, the scientists kind of figured out how to communicate with each other, right? And we have somehow lost the ability to bring people along and then the disconnect has become bigger. So. That's that's a problem. I think uh, we have to communicate it in, you know, understandable, relatable uh, way. And there's also the piece of communicating to kids about uh, in a context that's important to them. I'll give you a very simple example. I was trying to enroll my then uh, middle school daughter into a program, uh, after school science program, and she said, "But mommy, I'm not a nerd. I want to, you know, help people." So oh, she no. and she, yeah, exactly. That's what I said because me and my husband both are PhDs. <laughs> so let me tell you, we failed. And I and and so there was absolutely no. She was going by the media stereotype, thinking scientists beakers, you know, strange colors in a test tube and not solving problems. So slowly started the process at home to explain not what we do, but why we do it and how it helps solve problems. You know, and that's when the light bulb goes on. Oh, okay, I understand now what scientists do. So we have some sort of an image problem. And a lot of the media stereotypes and things like that, are, you know, for impressionable, especially girls at that age who are more inspired by the, the, the why or how does it relate to something that is tangible and can improve versus the what, you know. Yeah, that sounds like a big undertaking. Do you have practical steps or are you still sort of figuring out what those steps are based on the data you've collected? Uh, a bit of both. So some of the things that we're doing is is trying to figure out what appeals to people. So we have, um, you know, Scott Kelly, who's our uh, spokesperson, along with us on the State of Science Index, and he has been very vocal about not being a genius and, in fact, not even being a stellar student. But once he was inspired, he was able to follow through and become an engineer because he was so inspired after reading reading the right stuff, the book. Uh, that he wanted to be part of that space program and things like that. So I think it's about making 
those bold statements like he does, which is, I'm not a genius. I wasn't even a smart student. So more people can start thinking about, oh, yeah, you know, this is doable. We're also having a lot of, um, you know, panel discussions. In fact, we just had uh, an event at 3M uh, on science. We had um, an initiative with the Nobel Inspiration Nobel Prize Inspiration Initiative and had speakers like uh, um, Nobel Prize winners here. And we had the community present, the university students, young students, and uh, tried to uh, get that whole creative juice flowing in terms of science, scientists solving problems and what can be done. Um, and then we are also thinking about a lot of uh, uh, specific venues where we can be at. Uh, describing the results of the survey, having people, you know, look at them and do a double take and say, okay, now let's all be sort of advocates for science. Because as you know, I mean, just our company or just me alone, I mean, we're not going to be able to make some uh, dent in, in this this huge issue that that is out there, that science is something, you know, not for me, doesn't impact me, but it's important for society and it needs to deliver a whole heck of a lot. So that's that's the other point. Uh, and one of the questions in the survey was uh, about things that 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 science will deliver, and of course it was the it'll cure cancer and all those good things. And on top of that, it, there was this blurring of lines between uh, science and science fiction. And we'd be living underwater, we'll be living on Mars. All of that science needs to deliver. But at the same time, people are out there saying, "Well, I'm not sure science impacts me. I'm sure it's good for society, but I'm not sure it does anything for me." With 40% of the people saying, "Well, I don't think it would be any different if science didn't exist." So, I think that whole um, communication, context, advocacy, championing has to be more. Everybody, all of us who are uh, sort of science-minded and feel passionate about the idea of solving problems, and and the way I see this is also by 2050. What is it? Nine billion people on this planet. We have some real big challenges to <laughs> solve you know yeah i mean food water air shelter name it and we're gonna need all sorts of people with all sorts of backgrounds experiences creative mindset we want everybody to have a seat at the table if there are all these stereotypes you know about genius or this or that or male scientists or what have you we're not going to get that we are not going to get that so i think we're trying to see what are the venues where we can uh, describe the results, the impact, and then also uh, what are the ways that we can actually start moving the needle on this. Um, there's obviously the school-age students, the college-age students, the adults who are apathetic, uh, and each one of that requires a different strategy. So we're in the process of figuring out what's the best way to address this and how much influence can we exert and how. So um, I, w I would love to sort of um, circle back to, to this particular topic a little bit closer to the end of our conversation. Um, but for now, I wanted to step back a little bit and, and kind of ask uh, how you got here. So uh, what did you study? Um, what's your background? And then how did you end up at 3M? Yeah, I was um, actually, uh, I grew up in, in, in India in a university town and it had the um, one of the oldest and most prestigious engineering institutions in town. So my dad was an engineer. Everybody around was an engineer. And so all the parents wanted their kids to be engineers, including the girls, which is kind of odd. But the motivation was that the girls would just then just stay at home and go to college and become engineers and you wouldn't have to send them anywhere, et cetera. 
And so I was very uh, much, uh, uh, you know, a science-based family. My brother was, became an engineer, and I also went down the same path. Um, I wasn't, uh, you know, your typical engineering kid, but with a lot of encouragement and support, you know, I thought, why not? And then I came to the U.S. for graduate school. And while I was in graduate school, one of my lab mates got a job at 3M and he moved to 3M. That's how I found out about 3M. And then he called us and said, hey, we're looking for summer interns. You should come. And so two of us uh, became summer interns here. And when I was uh, interning at 3M, they offered me a, a job. And I thought, oh, my gosh, it's a great company. You know, um, my job would have nothing to do with what I've done in my Ph.D. But by that time, I had had enough experiences to where I had to reinvent myself, I wasn't worried about it. I thought, okay, we'll do it. So from uh, laser and plasma deposition of diamond-like carbon films, I went into working on diapers. So from diamonds to diapers. Well, I, <laughs> I, I, that, there's a lot of that I want to unpack. I want to start with what you did your PhD in and and, and you said carbon and diamonds. And yeah, like so my master's was in the uh, eutectic growth in space. So it was a modeling-based project. And my heart wasn't in it. I actually wanted to get my hands dirty. I wanted to do experiments. And I didn't know that about myself till I actually did my master's and realized that I really wanted to do something different. So I did the unthinkable. I actually switched advisors between master's and PhD. And a lot of people said that that's not a good thing to do. And you're going to be in graduate school forever, blah, blah, blah. But I was like, well, I'm going to have to do it because I want to do experiments. I want to use my hands. I want to see results. I want to plan experiments and things like that rather than just uh, coding. So that's when I switched and came to laser and plasma deposition of diamond-like carbon films. Um, that's what my uh, PhD was in. And then when I went to 3M, I was uh, in the division. I got hired into the division that was actually working on disposable soft good components, so things like fasteners that hold up diapers. That must have been a shock yeah i guess yeah, so well, like, i mean you're working on something that impacts somebody's daily life as opposed to yes you know longer run yes. theoretical and or you know discovering type yes stuff. so from um, diamonds to diapers is what i said never seen a real diamond never seen a real diaper so what difference does it make <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of how i approached it and uh, so i worked in that division for um several years worked on different components, uh, films, elastics, non-wovens, you know, fasteners, things like that. And then uh, uh, came to the industrial business and was looking at uh, um, developing uh, more sustainable uh, products. We've always had very sustainable uh, portfolios, but how do we keep advancing that and how do we look for new growth opportunities and further some of those uh, products? So, um that's what I do now, apply technology and product development in the industrial adhesives and tapes division. That seems so, I, I, I guess when you're sort of explaining working like on diapers, right? It sounds so sort of like, oh, you just make them. But I, the, the technology that goes into that must be far more complex than anybody gives it credit for. Yeah, we actually, it's, it's a wonderful over-engineered product in a way you look at it, but the beauty is that it has to do something so important, right? I mean, you do realize that it needs to stay put. And so we worked on different um, adhesive fastening means, so like the diaper tape, and it should stay, it should be openable by the parent, and then it should survive everything that the child might do, do with it, and then it should be openable again once it needs to be changed. So a lot of things to consider in there. 
And the same thing with fasteners. When the diapers migrated from tapes to fasteners, so now we're talking hook and loop. And then trying to figure out what's the best way to have a hook and loop such that the closure uh, works. Uh, you know, it, it can't be opened by the child, but can be easily opened by a caregiver. Um, and then also when you need to change it, it uh, doesn't, uh, you know, not easily open. And so some very interesting engineering balances in how we how we design those. So, yeah, there's a lot of good science that goes into that. that. And then, of course, it's thrown away. Right, right. Of course. Well, with regards to that throwing away um, issue, uh, this is a little bit tangential, uh, but, um, you know, you talked about how uh, sustainability is actually a very important part of 3M. Uh, with respect to diapers, how is that field evolving? Yeah, I'm not in that field anymore, so I would have to say a little bit dated, but essentially uh, now life cycle analysis and carbon footprint and we've much more sophisticated ways of finding out what is good and what isn't and composting and whether composting works or not. Do we have ability to compost things in the U.S.? Is there infrastructure even to do it? What happens to things in the landfill? So I think the, there's still a lot of discussion on what is the best thing, whether cloth diapers and whether the use of water and whether laundering at a certain temperature to make sure that they can be reused. Um, I'm not up to, up to date on that really, on where it all nets out. It's not a very simple unidimensional problem, as you can appreciate. There's so much involved in the whole life cycle piece of it. And uh, you'd be surprised what comes up above um, at certain point. What we do know is that we use the minimal amount of material. So we've got you know just enough material to do the function. Uh, so it's, a not, it's not something that is just thrown away and we don't know what happens. Um, uh, if, if, if a lot more was is used in that, even the diaper manufacturers, the people who supply the components and the other fasteners, everybody's trying to make sure it's decontented so that it functions, but doesn't have too much raw material into it, which doesn't need to be there. So, but I'm not up to speed on that anymore. Um, with, with what you're working on now, um, can you go in a little bit about what, if you can, about what you're working on now? And I'm guessing the same sort of conditions apply, right? Yeah. In a lot of things we're looking at, the best possible way to deliver the benefit with the least amount of raw materials and the least amount of impact on the environment. So looking at different raw materials, different streams, uh, looking at different processes, looking at different uh, process advancements, which significantly cut down on the amount of uh, energy usage. We're looking at eliminating solvents from everything. Um, so a lot of aspects of, of, of greener, we're looking at bio-based, uh, we're looking at end of life, uh, re, re, recycling, um, name it. And we've got, uh, programs around that. Talking about sustainability and product design and costs and, uh, you know, all the different factors, how do you prioritize between those or do you prioritize or, and where do those forces come from? Yeah, I think, uh, some of the uh, ways we prioritize it, the impact that a change will potentially have, right? So if the impact is going to be tremendous, uh, that obviously rises up in the list because it either has a tremendous impact on life cycle um, or whatever be the vectors that are important, you know, from a solvent perspective, let's say, or from a raw material usage perspective or a constrained material perspective. 
And then uh, some of the other things that justify are what our customers really care about. There are certain vectors of sustainability that a particular customer may care about more or less. So that helps with the prioritization of, of, the, of the projects. Uh, there are some things that just because we're an extremely uh, sustainable company, we started pollution prevention pays many, many years ago. And so we always have those projects that are continually trying to improve the throughput eels or, uh, you know, decontenting and things like that. So they get prioritized. So it all depends on uh, the impact, uh, the pull through from customers uh, and some disruptive projects that we come up with from a grassroots perspective, even saying that this could radically alter the way a certain product is used or uh, could have a large impact. So those get funded also. And sometimes even if the division or the business decides that that may not be the highest priority project, we have many opportunities at 3M to fund projects by other means. We have what is called like a 15% culture. So we can spend 15% of our time, let's say, of projects that we think are important, maybe perhaps for the future or uh, important for other businesses that we may not be in, but we have the freedom and empowered to work on those. And not only that, when we get it to a certain point, we can apply for grants internally. So it's kind of like the venture cap thing, if you will. We go ahead and we present and say, if we do this, there'll be so much impact on this or uh, bigger business or new opportunities, et cetera, or more sustainable product portfolio. And uh, we can get money for that. So I have had many of these grants, which actually come in really handy because you can be developing things on the side. You don't have to justify the money. You do it on your 15% time. Your peers have said that this is an important project. So you've been able to convince them and we get these grants and, and, and move the work along. And then we're able to show, look, this is the impact we'll have. This is our prototypes. And we want to now become a, a real project and have the opportunity to commercialize. So we are able to do those kinds of things, which we have really used for, for some of my projects. Coming back to the um, issue of science advocacy, what are you hoping um, will happen? Or I guess, what are your or goals for the next you know, year, three years, five years? Yeah, the way we view it is we don't want to see um, the kind of results that we saw where 40% of the people said that if science didn't exist, their lives wouldn't be any different. We want to see that people begin to understand the relationship of science with their lives. And that would make uh, a major impact in terms of the sort of the narrative around science, because that will then allow more children perhaps to get more excited about it. Because right now, if people don't see the importance of science, how are they communicating with kids that, that you know, it would be great if you do science or whatever. And if people are buying into the biases and stereotypes to the point where they're thinking science is not for me, you know, so trying to, you know, make a dent in, in those numbers where we can see that more people are saying, oh yeah, I didn't realize that, that it's science that fuels the technology that I'm getting so used to now. Um, so simple things like that. So uh, one of the other things that we have done is a lot of sort of LinkedIn articles and, and uh, you know, trying to reach out and saying, look, there's science in, in everyday life. And um, the more we appreciate it, more we understand it, more we wanna know about it, the more we're likely to tell the kids, yeah, science solves problems. Scientists and engineers are creatively addressing some of the issues that need to be addressed as the population of the planet grows. And that way, we can get more of this 
um, sort of uh, appreciation and uh, less of this, oh, science isn't for me kind of a thing. So having more role models out there, um, having more conversation around science. And that's another thing that we've been talking about a lot. How do we foster a conversation at a larger scale? What is the way in this day and age when people are inundated by messages and inundated by different things, how do we make science be a small part of it without being overtly so, so that they start appreciating it and things like that. So it's hard to specifically state what we will be able to do yet, but I think we know the problem to solve. And the, the, the good news is that regardless of whether people were skeptics or whether people did not trust science or whether people were not aware of science, Everybody thought that their country was falling behind. Everybody thought that kids should know more about science. Everybody thought that it would be great for, uh, you know, to encourage their kids to become scientists. So I think the good news is there. We just have to figure out the best way to reach. We're going to try a few different things. And we're also hoping we can create some sort of a network with other organizations and other companies even and figure out how we best address this. There's also a career piece where people are thinking that a science-based career is not satisfying. I think we have to address that also. I think the scientists are largely shy and reticent as a crowd sometimes, and we're not thumping our chest saying, no, I have a great satisfying career, and I've been able to impact change. And look, I've even been given the chance to leave a legacy, and all because I am in science, and I solve problems, and I can improve lives, you know. Those kinds of things are not talked about because we're all not so chest thumpy as as a as a people. Yeah. You know. Do you um in your own work and and also in this the advocacy role, what gets you excited about what's coming down the pipeline? Whether that's new technology you're working with, or whether it's optimism about people you've been working with or talking to. I think everything all around. I see people see that there is a need for that. And I don't have to look far. I have a teenage daughter who completely did not appreciate what scientists and engineers do until we broke it down that we solve problems and you you want to change the world and you want to make an impact and you want to solve problems and this is a good way of doing it. And we had to make it relatable to her and it started with simple things. So I know that you can change minds based on how you communicate. I mean, we started with simple things like her asking, she was talking and my husband was like, well, you have to stop talking because I'm measuring for my bread. And, and she was like, well, why do you need to measure? It's just bread, isn't it? And we said, okay, let's see what happens if you don't measure. Let's see what happens if you double the water. She wanted to double the sugar, of course, and then double different ingredients and you make bread. And she was so excited because now she could clearly see, you know, a rudimentary sort of design of experiments. And that, you know, a scientific thought process, we made her hypothesize on what would come out in the bread. She was excited to go take a picture of it. And then we encouraged her to go and participate in a local science fair and she won and she loves winning. So, you know, it, it's it's all about, <laughs> look, and you're a scientist now. And, and she could not, and I'm like, no, you're a scientist now. And, and she, she was like, oh yeah, that's true. So it's very, very simple in a way and uh, very difficult in other ways if you want to make it out to be. So I'm excited about how we could influence uh, a lot of people to be more excited about science and opt for science-based careers. And I think part of the problem is, especially when it's uh, minorities and women, and uh, it's, it's just they don't see enough people out there. And so they don't think it's possible. And that's the other thing that I feel pretty excited about. Anytime I go anywhere and talk to anybody, I mean, people are 
are like, oh, wow, so this is possible. And it certainly is. And I would not say that I was an engineering type, but it was always the inspiration from the problem to solve that that just got me excited about my work. And I always used my talents in my work, which was not related to science-based skills, but it was more about being able to tell a story of why we were working on something to build that narrative and things like that. So what I tell people is don't think you're a scientist only if you can you know, fix something in your home or whatever. Science needs all kinds of people. And the problems to solve that we have as, as a society will need all of us. A lot more creativity will be needed. So everybody is welcome. That kind of a thing really excites me because I want everybody to have a seat at the table when we're trying to unlock the you know, future, the sustainable future that we want to have. Well, that was very (laughs) eloquently stated. Um, Perfect note. Yes. Um, Jayshree, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you. It was uh, great talking to you. Hey, you're still here. Thanks for sticking around to the end of the show. Help other people find this podcast by giving us a rating on iTunes. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Scope Podcast. Our theme music was composed by The Copy Cuts.